You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. Well, if you brought a copy of God's word, I want to invite you to turn it open to the Gospel of Matthew where today we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And as I said earlier, just such a joy to celebrate baptisms. Uh, There is nothing greater than hearing people testify to how the Lord has met them in their life, has revealed uh, sin to them, their need for a Savior, and, of course, the preciousness of Jesus and all that he has done. Um, it really doesn't get any better than that, especially, I think, when you combine it with a text like the one we are in today where we are contemplating the incomparable riches of God's grace towards his people. Uh, that is the focus of our time today. And uh, if you weren't with us last week, Uh, I do think it would be helpful to just kind of understand some of what we covered uh, because today's text is clearly tied in with it. So last week, Pastor Adam, who was the guy that got up here and did the scripture reading this morning, uh, taught about a very tragic situation that no doubt many of you are familiar with. Uh, It was a situation where a young, rich, powerful man comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus honestly, the best question, the greatest question, the question that everybody should be asking, which is this, how can I have eternal life? And uh, here's how Jesus replied. He said, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, Jesus says, keep the commandments. And then in chapter 19, if you have your Bibles open, verse 18, then the man says this, he says, well, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the man responds to Jesus by saying this, Well, all these I have kept. Now, we know that that wasn't actually the case because no one keeps all of God's commands. But the man was blind to his own sin. He was self-deceived. He thought of himself more good than he actually was, which in reality, when you do that, always makes God out to be less holy than he is too. And so here's what Jesus does. He tests the man's statement that he has been obedient to all of these things by giving him another command. Okay, you say you love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to give you an opportunity to follow through with that now. He says, okay, if you would be perfect, then do this. Go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So he asked a great question. Jesus has given him the answer. Everybody should be celebrating. Yes, now he knows how to spend eternity with Jesus, right? But does he do what Jesus just commanded? Sadly, 
No, he doesn't. But he walks away from Jesus sad because the text says he had many possessions. So this man, this young ruler, he was marked by pride. He was marked by the love of money, by the love of material possessions. He had an idol of the heart, an idol of comfort, an idol of wealth, an idol of privilege. But he wasn't willing to forsake it to follow Jesus. And therefore, Jesus says to the disciples at this point, he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I realize that not many of us sow these days, but that's kind of the imagery here. A needle with that little eye on the end of it that the thread goes through. Jesus is saying, it is easier for a camel to go through that little eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom, which the, the result, of course, is the disciples going, how can anyone be saved then? And you have to understand why they're, they're saying it like that. It was because if anybody would seem to have a leg up on getting to heaven, who was it? It would have been this man. I mean, this was a virtuous man. This was a moral man. If there was anybody that was applying themselves to getting to heaven, it was him. And in Jewish culture, it was also kind of an evidence of God's favor, some believed, that one would be so wealthy. So, I mean, he's got it all. He's good. He's virtuous. He's moral. He's got all this wealth. And yet Jesus says he is not a member of God's kingdom community. And despite however good he is and however much he has, he is not actually going to heaven. Well, this precipitates kind of a thought for the disciples. And the thought was this, well, <laughs> if, if that's the outcome for this man, what does our future look like? And just so that you see the question that comes from Peter, look in your Bibles, look at verse 27. Again, chapter 19, verse 27. Peter says this to Jesus. He says, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And then Jesus says this in verse 30, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And with that, now with your Bibles open, I want you to look in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. Notice what it says. So the last will be first, and the first last. Well, like I said, we're going to be covering verses 1 through 16 in Matthew 20, but it's important that you realize that the last verse of last week's passage is directly tied in with the last verse of today's passage. And if I were to rephrase the question that I think the disciples are ultimately asking or looking for, it is this, is it going to be worth it? Is it going to be worth it? And you know what? As we listen to the testimonies up here, uh, one thing you would uh, find 
that showed up in all of them was I was pursuing the world running in this direction and I realized it couldn't satisfy and that only Jesus could. And so there was a turning towards Jesus Christ. But every single person before they follow Jesus has to ask this question, is it worth it? But then once you start to follow Jesus, you eventually realize that there's a lot of trials that come with following him. There's adversity that you face. There's persecution that you endure. There's slandering that you experience, depending on who you are. And so, after you choose to follow Jesus, it is not uncommon for this question to come up in your own heart, even if you don't express it to someone else, where you're thinking, man, is it going to be worth it? You get fired from your job, which is becoming more common today than ever. You get fired for your job for following Jesus. Is it worth it? <laughs> I mean, I had, a, I had a pretty good income with this job. Is it going to be worth it? You get rejected by family members. You have children that want to walk away from you because they think that you're just so strict because you just want to have them follow Jesus and they disown you and you go, is it worth it? I take it some of you are asking that question yourselves. So, Here's the question. So Jesus, will the sacrifices we made, the persecution we received, the money we gave, the comforts we surrendered, the friendships we lost, the opportunities we passed up, the sin we forsook, will it all be worth it? Great question. Now let's read our text. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Jesus shares a parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. So if you look at this narrative, it breaks down into kind of three parts. And we're going to move through these parts as, so that I can just describe the story, making sure you notice all of the intricate details. Because... That is where we learn the main point of the story. So the first part to the story 
is this, and we see how a master of a house hires workers for his vineyard. A master of a house hires workers for his vineyard. Now, in the Old Testament, a vineyard could represent a number of things. Oftentimes, it would represent Israel, but I don't think that the disciples are intended to pick up any sort of Old Testament imagery here. I think why he chooses a vineyard is simply because it was an illustration that everybody could understand and relate to. In Galilee, there was lots of rich soil. Therefore, there were many vineyards. They were common. And so this is a, a wealthy, apparently, a wealthy vineyard owner. And he goes out. It must be harvest time. He's looking for workers. I'm guessing he goes out about 5.30 in the morning. The workday would have started at approximately 6 a.m., and it would have gone for about 12 hours. That was the work day. He goes out. He finds laborers. A deal is made. The terms of the agreement are clear. He offers them a denarius. They accept a denarius and say, all right, I'll go to work for you. No problem. So they go out, and they get working, and no doubt it was taxing. It was extremely strenuous work, nothing easy. Laborers working with their hands. But, alas, we discover the master of the house still needs more workers. There's an abundance of work, not enough laborers, so he goes back to the marketplace and he finds people standing around. We're told that they were idle. He even asks, why are you standing around? They say, because no one has hired us. So the sense I get from this is I don't think we should read in that these guys were lazy. They went to the right place. They went to the marketplace. That would be where someone would go to find work. That is where commerce was conducted. That's where business took place on the outskirts of the city. And... Uh, so they're going to the right place to look for work. But we have a situation here where we have, uh, I guess you could say, high unemployment because we just don't have enough work for the laborers. Well, praise the Lord then that the master of the house shows up at the marketplace because he certainly has no problem uh, finding work. He's got a, pl a plentiful amount of work for people to do. And so he needs more workers. He goes in and he hires more workers. And he does this. First, at the third hour, which would be 9 a.m. Again, the first workers began at 6 a.m. He goes back and again hires more laborers at the sixth hour, which was noon. He does it again at the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m. And then again at the 11th hour, 5 p.m. But notice the terms of the agreement with the other laborers. Right? I just told you that the first workers, the deal was for a denarius, which was the standard wage for a day laborer. He doesn't make that deal with the other workers. Five groups of workers, four of those groups, here's the deal, come work for me, and I'm gonna pay you what is right, or what is just, or what is fair. And that's an important detail in the story because no doubt, after the laborers went out and they worked in the vineyard, those that worked fewer hours than the first were probably expecting just a fractional percentage of a denarius. If they had worked five-eighths of the day, they would have expected probably five-eighths of a denarius. 
So first we see the master goes out to hired vineyard laborers. Now we notice in verses 8 through 12 how the master pays the vineyard laborers. The master pays the vineyard laborers. So it's been a long, hard, strenuous day of work. People no doubt are exhausted but are thankful to be paid. And this would have been the standard practice you went to work for somebody, you got paid every single day. There, there wasn't a need for you to go to your employer and say, hey, you think, you think you could give me an advance on my paycheck? I mean, the deal was, you work, you get your pay. And that was actually commanded and required by the Old Testament in order to prevent any employer taking advantage of an employee and holding back their income. Leviticus 19.13 states the principle like this, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. So as soon as that laborer puts in his time, you pay him. So, and, and notice how he pays him tells the foreman to pay the workers, and this is odd. Again, we're like looking at this, and even there's, there's something in our hearts going, what? Are you kidding me? I don't know that I like the master of the house. Because what does he say to the foreman? He tells the foreman to pay the workers who were hired last first. But secondly, what else are we aghast at? Not only does he pay the workers who were hired last first, but secondly, we are told that he pays the same exact amount to every worker. And so just, just imagine, like, work is done. Yeah, like a line of people all ready to get paid. They're punching out for the day. And you got the people that just put in one hour. They were hired at the 11th hour. And here they are, they're at the front of the line, and they get a denarius. And then the next crew comes up, and they get a denarius. And then the next group comes up, and they get a denarius. And the guys that are in the back of the line have worked hard all day, and now they've got to wait for all these others. And with every single person, you know what they're thinking? Gosh, Master of the House is being quite generous today. There are actually no complaints at this moment. I mean, yeah, they're in the back of the line, but I really don't think they're complaining. What they're, what they're doing is they're back there going, man, I mean, if the master was, you know, that generous with those guys, I cannot wait to see the generosity that he bestows upon us because we, I mean, we've been working hard, right? But, of course, what happens to their dismay and to their disappointment that big expectation they had is suddenly popped because they get paid the exact same amount. And so here comes the complaint. They literally say, what are you doing? You made them equal to us, though we bore the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Now, some of you, you know, you know this statement well, right? You know like there are times in the workday where you're like, I don't want to be out there. 
Growing up on the farm, one of my dad's favorite projects to give to his sons was the cleaning out of grain bins. So he would send us to a property, and eventually we figured it out. Like, we best not be showing up to clean out the grain bins afternoon. We better be getting there awfully early before the sun comes up, just as it's coming up, or we're going to get to them later, right? These workers have borne the brunt of the sun and the heat, and others, they showed up, they missed out on all of that very ownersome time. And so they are upset with the master of the house. And you know what? Like, there's plenty of you, you, you really can understand the complaint too, right? Because how many of you, you've had a group project for school? Some of you know, like, as soon as the teacher says the words group project, you're going, oh, no. Because you know there's going to be that person or a couple people in the group that aren't doing any of the work, but they're going to get the same grade. And you're going, that's not fair. Hey, uh, maybe teacher, professor, maybe you just, you know, give me my own assignment, and they as a group can do theirs, but I mean, I'll just do mine alone. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know some of you here have done that. It just seems unfair. And so they complain. And in response to their complaint, then, what do we see happens next? Suddenly, the master rebukes the vineyard workers who complained about equal pay for unequal work. That's the third movement of the text. The master rebukes the vineyard workers who complain about equal pay for unequal work. And with regards to this rebuke, we need to pay special attention because in it, I think, is where we learn our biggest lessons about this parable. Now, keep in mind, a parable is intended to keep a, uh, is to, intended to teach us spiritual truths, spiritual realities. We learn things about salvation. We learn things about God in these parables, and there are four distinct things that especially shine through in terms of the attributes of God that I want us to notice. So, what are those? Well, the first lesson or the first attribute we come across is this: I want us to notice how God is gentle, because again, the master of the house. That is representing God. And notice how God, or the master of the house, begins his rebuke. What does he say? He says, you rotten little worker. No, he doesn't say that, right? He says, friend. I mean, the master could be extremely indignant at this point, right? Like, like who are you to complain to me? A deal's a deal. You awful worker, changing the terms of our agreement. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And as we have seen before, we now see again that there are times when God is displeased with his people in terms of their ethical choices and their behavior. But even then, even when they are wrong, even when they make mistakes, even when they sin, does it change their identity no like they are so in the wrong and yet he calls them friends 
that's the amazing thing about the gospel when you think about it even in your own lives i'm guessing some of you can think this week where you're going oh man i really blew it if only i could go back and and change what i said here or change what i did there and you struggle with that guilt that's where we need the reminder that the blessing of the gospel is this that even when we fail even when we make mistakes god sees us no differently when we are adopted into his family as his children we are forever his children when we are saved by the grace of god we are forever and always god's friends and so he deals with us in this manner yes he still disciplines us as believers but it is his chastisement of love that he brings into our lives that we might know him more and that we might be more fruitful for him so first we see just how god is gentle now lesson number two or attribute number two we notice this notice how god is just he says friend i'm doing you no wrong did you not agree with me for a denarius you see, a deal was struck between those first workers and the master of the house, right? And the master at no point went back on that deal. That's who God is. He is one who always keeps his deals. Whatever he has promised, he will fulfill. Whatever he has said, he will bring to pass. Whatever he agrees to, he does not break. And yet, so many times we think of God as unjust. So many times we're tempted to think of him as not being absolutely perfect in his dealings. And why is this? Well, one major cause that we notice from this passage is because rather than setting our eyes on God, we set our eyes on other people. And before you know it, we grow jealous, envious. <laughs> That's exactly what they were doing, right? They noticed all these four other groups just watching them, just using them as the benchmark of the master of the house's faithfulness towards them. And they grumble. Oh, do they grumble. So first we see how God is just, then we see how God is, we see how he's gentle, then how he's just. But lesson number three, we also see this, God is sovereign. Verse 14, look there. He says, I chose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with, what, with what belongs to me? Listen, Christian, God owns absolutely everything. So this morning when you woke up, you woke up in a bed that belongs to God. If you ate breakfast, you ate food that came from God, that he provided. Even now, we are breathing God's oxygen, surrounded by God's people. Everything belongs to the Lord. He owns everything. Every time we touch or see anything, he owns it. And everything that we receive, everything that we experience that is good is always a gracious gift from his hand. Even your life, it's a gift from God. 
Psalm 24 says it like this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And indeed, that's a humbling thought that brings you to a place of great humility because if you realize where your life came from, then all of a sudden you realize who you owe it to. Your life does not belong to you. It belongs to God. He placed you on this earth for his glory, for his honor, for his purposes. And if you refuse to come to Christ, you will never fulfill the purpose with which you were created. So it all belongs to God. I love Isaiah 46 was reading that this week. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. This kind of dispute about God's justice, this kind of debate with God goes on throughout Scripture regarding certain matters. We could look at Romans 9, where Paul perceives that his people are reading of God's sovereign plans and purposes to save the world through promises given to the Jews, right? He's, he's ultimately saying of their rejection. He knows people are thinking of Israel's rejection, of their, their rebellion against God. They're saying, well, if this is what the Lord has chosen to do, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20 says this, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? God is sovereign. And therefore there is not a single solitary person who has the right to question his wisdom regarding what he gives, how much of it he gives, and to whom he gives it. God is not obliged, friends, to deal with everyone in the exact same way. He reserves the right to treat different people differently. And now maybe you're thinking, what do you mean he reserves the right to treat different people differently? Didn't he treat them all the same? Well, no. He treated them all differently. Again, because depending on where you were in the line of workers... The first person to get paid thought of him as really, 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 really generous. The next person is thinking he's really, really, really generous. And the next person's going, he's really, really generous. And the next person's going, he's really generous. Well, then obviously the next group, they didn't think he was generous at all. And so this is the next point I want to point out. Lesson four, or the fourth attribute of God, God is generous. He says, or do you begrudge my generosity? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So God is gentle. God is just. God is sovereign. God is generous. But we still need to ask a key question, which is this. Who ultimately is the first and the last? And we need to ask this question because really there's two ways that you can think about first. First could be a reference and sometimes is to persons of prominence or importance according to the world standards. It is also sometimes used as a reference to somebody who came before another person. 
So it's got a chronological or a sequential idea in mind. And so scholars go back and forth. Well, is, is Jesus speaking to the reality that, you know, the Jews first received the promises of God. They were the ones first given the opportunity to uh, follow their Messiah and to believe in him. And, and those that come last are the Gentiles or, or is it? Or is it the other interpretation? And I would go primarily with the other because what do we just look at? Where do we start our time together today? We talked about the rich, young ruler. Again, there was a guy that was there that if you thought if anybody had a leg up to get into heaven, who was it? It was this rich, young ruler. And so here's the point for the disciples. Like, guys, just stop worrying about what you're going to receive. You are going to be taken care of well. And even as you think about God not treating everybody the same, it's borne out in this passage because does everybody get to sit on the 12 thrones of Israel judging the tribes? No, but he says to the disciples, you're going to be given this incredible position of influence, of authority, right? Regardless, though, don't worry about the final outcome because you will be paid back far more than you can possibly comprehend. I think 1 Corinthians actually does a great job of bringing out this truth. I love how Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he's saying to Christians in, in order actually to humble them and to realize God's abundant goodness towards them because they were becoming proud and arrogant, thinking they were something special, either because of who discipled them or because of what gifts they had or what have you. And so here's what Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So getting back to that question that the disciples had in mind, is it worth it? Friends, you tell me, is it worth it? It is worth it. It is far more worth it than anything you could go to the store and buy. You have probably experienced buyer's remorse. You've gone in, you've gotten something that you thought was going to deliver and you go home and you're like, why did I spend my money on this for? But let me tell you this, when you choose Jesus, there is never buyer's remorse. Because God pays you back so much more than you could ever give to him because he is generous. And at no point do I want you to think that this passage is saying, well, you know, go out, work for Jesus, and you know what? Then, then ultimately you have salvation. No, this assumes salvation for every worker they inherit eternal life and we as we've heard this morning only experience eternal life through one means and that is through faith alone in jesus christ nothing that you could possibly do would ever be good enough to get you into heaven and if you think that then just just think about this, friends. The reason that will never work is because the moment you sin, the moment you slip up even once, what do you deserve for that one sin? You deserve God's eternal righteous condemnation. 
So, okay, maybe you do some good things. But then that one thing, that slips you already into the negative column. And you're never going to do more good deeds than your bad deeds. So here's my encouragement then, friends. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and keep looking to Jesus. And when this week you are tempted to look at the person to your left or to your right and you're thinking, man, why do they get that? How good it would be if I could have that, that remember this, that at the end of the day, you have immeasurable and unsearchable riches in Jesus Christ. And you've been given a down payment of those riches by the reception of the Holy Spirit. But keep in mind, that is merely a down payment. There is so much more coming, but not as a result of anything you have done but as a result of what Christ has done for you. Friend, have you trusted in Jesus? Have you given him your life? I sure hope that before the end of the day, that if you haven't, you would, because there is no greater thing to receive than the gift of eternal life and a reconciled relationship with God. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.